Welcome to the Design Exec Club podcast, featuring global design executives discussing how to solve and accelerate to a better future with the design lens. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder and chair of the Driven by Design Awards. Over the last 18 months, I've had the privilege to interview a wide range of design leaders. We've re-edited and tweaked the audio and republished these for you to learn, be inspired and understand how others are getting to the future faster and working to create a better future. I'm having a conversation here with Frederick Bell at Columbia University and Faculty House in the boardroom. It's interesting to be in this room because I'm looking at a picture of three architects who really knew how to uh, speak with various boards, corporate and otherwise. Uh, McKimmon and White, they also designed the Columbia campus uh, uh, surrounding us, and uh, they did a damn good job at it. So um, you've had a, a huge number of roles since, since we've met each other. Some of them have been the, say, major normative role that you've had at the Institute of Architects, the Centre for Architecture, at uh, the NYC in, in their um, design and uh, construction area there, and now you're at Columbia. But then in that same time, you've been on boards left, right and centre where you've mentioned that sometimes you've been the only architect there, who I might say generally architecture is a non-rational pursuit, uh, on a board which is full of rationalists being lawyers and accountants. Uh, Even as we speak, I'm being nominated to a board where I'll be the only architect, and um, it's um, a board that will be looking at a fairly interesting development project coming up. Um, They wanted an architect on the board to be able to communicate with developers. I didn't disabuse them (laughs) of the notion that the conversation uh, would be uh, (laughs) one-sided. But but I'm looking forward to the opportunity because it is, when you bring design thinking into the room, you know, a question of process and not just the bottom line. It's uh, not just about the schedule and the budget, but about the quality of what's being produced. And I'd like to think that's what architects who serve on boards you know, myself and others have been able to add to the discussion here and there. And Rick, you've had uh, two stints where you've been at uh, NYC and uh, and two different mayors there. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I don't want to get into the detail of anything in particular they were doing, but more about the flavour that was coming from the boardroom down through the executive management inside uh, inside the city of New York and then down into operations there. And because there was, what, 10 or 15 years difference between those two assignments, wasn't it? Yeah, and as you say, it's maybe not necessary to go into the differences in personality or ideology between different mayors, but I think the common feature uh, was of a rather hierarchic um, structure uh, in which... The board, if you will, was led by a chairperson, a chair of the board, uh, the mayor, um, who ultimately served uh, at the pleasure of the electorate. So there were outside um, proxy sending participants, but the mayor and in each instance his senior staff constituted a decision-making apparatus that um, brought together people with different skills and uh, took advice uh, or not uh, based on the perception of how it would play to a much larger group outside the boardroom. To help our listeners to get a bit of frame of reference there, so you were there with Mayor de Blasio and the former mayor that you worked under? 
I actually worked with two former mayors who could not be more different. One was David Dinkins and one was Rudy Giuliani. I stayed on after uh, uh, David Dinkins, who is one of my favorite mayors and will go down in history uh, um, um, as a hero to many, many people, not just among the African-American community in New York, but people who are progressive and have tried and sometimes succeeded in doing great things. Uh, de Blasio is in that same um, cut. Uh, Giuliani was vastly different. Their managerial styles was different. Um, I did not work for Bloomberg, but I, through my role at the American Institute of Architects, New York chapter, if not becoming an advisor as such, was a frequent uh, collaborator on behalf of the organization uh, with both uh, Mayor Bloomberg and his senior staff. So I want to go in and have a have a little bit of a look at the different characteristics of the first first mayor that you experienced and the oh I, sh I should mention I forgot I was an intern under Mayor Lindsay that was a very very long time ago uh, in in the seventies and you've got that was mayors a everywhere well, it was, it was, it was, it was, yeah so yeah, I've worked for a bunch of different mayors okay so. Let's have a little bit of a look at the literacy and confidence of using design and architecture to create the economic outcomes or the economic future mm -hmm. for New York. How would you rate from your first exposure into your last exposure in the mayoral office? Had the literacy level gone up? Had it stayed reasonably consistent or had it even changed down where it may not, may have been less rigorous than it was when you first got in there? It's a good question. Um, John Lindsay hired incredible people, particularly in the Department of City Planning, where he created uh, the uh, urban design office that radically changed New Yorkers' outlook on what was possible in the city and did innovative things that were credited and uncredited, including uh, the design thought of co-locating public facilities, having police and fire adjacent, having health and library facilities adjacent, uh, looked at the city holistically, gave attention equally to all five boroughs, um, um, was designed the major priority of Mayor Lindsay. No, but things got started that set the tone for what would be possible later. I'm skipping over Abe Beam, for whom I did not work. Abe Beam fired all the provisional civil servants. The city was having economic woes. Uh, he had been controller. He knew how to control money. And provisional civil servants tended to be uh, creative. There were many architects, I could name a few, doesn't really matter, who were able to, in the Lindsay years, do things uh, that were um, taking design to a different level. Um, and I could give detail if you want, but maybe I should skip forward to... Yeah, uh, I suppose what I'm more interested in is that we're looking at this from uh, trends. Yeah. Rather, rather than getting lost too deep in, in well, the, the, the particular scenarios. Are, the trends are probably... Um, a reflection also of um, what's happening in the larger world, you know, outside the boardroom. Political boardrooms, if you can call City Hall a boardroom, I guess back in the Lindsay years, it was literally a boardroom. The mayor sat on something called the Board of Estimate. The city council was the second of two uh, legislative bodies in a bicameral system. The Board of Estimate was eliminated, so it was declared unconstitutional. The different members on the panel had different 
uh, uh, electorates, so it wasn't one person, one vote. Uh, but it was a boardroom, and decisions were made as they are in many boardrooms, sometimes at the table in open discussion, often in the ante room, I'm pointing to one, uh, where a deal would be made and votes would be garnered and decisions would be made that were both political and mostly logical, mostly rational, not always. I saw that early, you know, what was that? That was the 70s as an intern, you know, uh, uh, which paradoxically gave me greater access to some <laughs> decision-making sessions than I would have as a, a mid-level bureaucrat or, or whatever I became after that. Uh, but... Um, Discussions around a boardroom table like uh, pick a movie with a dozen people angry or not at a table, 12 angry men. Um, how are decisions made, I think, is the operative uh, point of interest because a board is not a town hall. It's not, um, uh, it's, it's not democracy where everybody concerned is in the room at the same time. Um, it's representative in nature. And uh, that, you might say, is the pattern of most democratic governments. There are people who are there representing other people. They bring their own personal proclivities, their formation, their attitudes, their prejudices, their ideas uh, to the table. And sometimes they're able to convince each other about things. And that's what's fascinating about the dynamic at any board. Uh, almost any meeting, but boards are different than a meeting that's topical or some working group or temporary session because, in principle, they're established to uh, make decisions that have uh, uh, long-lasting and fiduciary uh, import. Um, so, yes, the Board of Estimate and City Hall, by extension, uh, was a board. Um, fast forward to... Uh, the last years of the uh, Dinkins administration, the city was bedeviled uh, by lack of resources. There were decisions made uh, and aspirations uh, uh, elaborated that couldn't always be achieved. Um, Mayor Dinkins was criticized for not necessarily being able to follow through on some of the things that were initiated. Uh, I don't share those assumptions, but the city was resource poor. Uh, Mayor Giuliani was not as encumbered by financial woes. Uh, decisions were made that reflected his personal uh, political philosophy. Uh, won't get into ideology more than you want to, but I, as someone who stayed when many other colleagues voted with their feet, quote unquote, and left his administration, I stayed for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with, but uh, one of them was to try to achieve some of the things that a civil servant could you know, uh, uh, having the ear of decision makers. And I did have the ear of the commissioner of, uh, of what was the newly formed Department of Design and Construction at the time. Um, and um, uh, I, I think even given um, priorities that I didn't always agree with, uh, some good things did happen in those, uh, in those years. Many new libraries were built, uh, libraries were renovated, and so forth. So I'm really interested because you've touched on something there which I think a lot of people, a lot of people who've been used to their own creative freedom don't understand the, because that's often a dogmatic position. They don't get the pragmatism that's needed, which is you need to work out which battles you're going to win. You need to work out, are you nudging a particular agenda forward? But what I learned when I was in government is that sometimes things line up, but 
most of the time they don't. And so you have to actually just work out how are you pushing in the direction that you want to, but not getting too upset if through that democratic and voting process that the, that the alternate comes around. And then you have to work out how to go make the best out of the situation that you're in. And I think that's where I see as a range of people who think that they want to go get a seat at the table they actually think it's a dominant seat rather than a pragmatic seat. And, and, and that's very interesting to me. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, what do you do with the seat at the table? Um, it matters tremendously. Um, for one thing, you can't talk too much. Uh, <laughs> people get tired of hearing your voice, especially if it's uh, persistence, strident, and single note. Um, pragmatism counts, uh, but the clarity of what you add to the discussion as either a member of the board or someone ex officio or otherwise who's there to comment from time to time is vitally important. Um, uh, I used to think, and I think I would say that I still do, uh, despite my advanced years, that you could go into a board meeting where decisions are made that have significant impact, as I said, and through force of logic, uh, convince people to change their minds about things. Um, there are cultures, and I won't elaborate on which ones, where board meetings, other meetings are ceremonial, and decisions are all made long before people sit down to essentially ratify decisions that were done in some other room, in some other place. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but the point of the meeting and the point of the board, for that matter, is a little bit lost, so maybe there is something fundamentally wrong with it. You know, why does a board exist? Uh, uh, there are often, um, when you sign on to being on a board, uh, uh, various pledges about responsibility, fiscal and otherwise. Um, but if the decisions aren't always clear-cut, if there are gray areas and decisions to be made, and if people who do have that sense of responsibility serving on a board come into a meeting to decide issues of one stripe or another with an open mind, um, being able to express an idea that might lead to consensus, compromise, or a pragmatic solution to uh, seemingly insolvable problem or challenge. Um, I, I always saw that as one of the reasons I enjoyed being on a board, is to sort of hold back and wait a little bit and see how um, discussion was trending. Um, and with my own convictions um, held in one hand on the side, try with the other hand to gesture and bring the consensus together that actually resulted in a decision, you know, with if not 90% or 80%, at least 60 or 70% of what I thought was important to the issue at hand. So I want to switch gears a bit from yeah. big boards, such as the City of New York, into a reasonably smaller scale board, still of significance, the Institute of Architects, the um, Centre for Architecture mm -hmm. here in New York. It's a, it's a unique beast, particularly when, when you were forming it. And you, I suppose you would have actually gone from having um, a whole range of decisions that had to be in context with the city and it was part of an agenda into now having a really a single source. It's a group of architects trying to work out what does their centre look like? Does it represent their culture? What risks are associated? It, it must have been a, a very interesting shift going from something which has such enormity and you and such 
universal coverage into something that was then coming down to a single purpose and single single idea. Yes and no. And and what I have until just now forgotten is that I served on the board as a member uh, before I took on the ex officio role of uh, executive director of the organization. And when I served on the board as a member of the board, I was working for the city and I was, I'll call it the token public architect. Uh, most of the other people on the board were private sector architects. Uh, one thing that the board wanted to do when I was a member of the board was open a storefront center for architecture. The board was fairly unanimous in that. Um, the then executive director, who's still a friend, um, uh, thought that was fiscal folly. Uh, her contract wasn't renewed. They looked for someone, a volunteer, to step in on uh, interim basis, become the executive director, and lead the board into the implementation of a strongly held idea that may or may not have made sense at the time. And uh, I took a leave of absence from my city job to do that, and then stayed on for almost 15 years. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, yeah, I remember. So the transition was more gradual than right. it might have seemed. Uh, but to your question, to your point, the discussions at the board were not just about the organization, membership development, uh, value to members, the value proposition, the, the logistics of creating this new center. But they talked uh, about what the role of an architect in society should be, what the role of uh, architects in New York City were as trusted advisors to government agencies, what our advocacy position should be, whether the AI should endorse political candidates. So um, especially when I stepped to that other side of the board, as a non-voting ex officio member setting the agenda, leading the discussion to a degree, uh, with a president who changed every year, I should hasten to add, volunteer one-year presidency. The discussions were not just about the organization, but about the city, if not the world. So it was a little bit more gradual transition, the, the, the difference being, of course, the Institute were... Uh, what would be the New York word, kibitzers. You know, we were advising, we were trusted or not trusted advisors, but we tried to present ourselves uh, uh, as a board with uh, a degree of technical expertise and uh, objective uh, analytic abilities to weigh in on issues that were ultimately uh, uh, political, if, if everything is. What I'm really enjoying about this conversation is we haven't spoke about, spoken about style we haven't spoken about about um, whether something is on trend. We haven't spoken about the process of design. We've been just focusing on how boards boards work and boards operate, and that's really interesting because although your expertise is in the designed outcomes, being involved with boards is actually being involved with their game and their culture and bringing your expertise into that fold. And so, so this is. We've had a couple of conversations that have been of a similar nature, but this is so focused on how the structure and the operations of boards work. This is going to be incredibly useful for the audience to be able to say, there's a briefing and a conversation I probably would never have been part of. So I want to dig in a little bit little bit more about that sure. because you've got 15 years that you're, that you're in this ex officio role. Right. You've gone through what would be a building program because the thing has to get out of the ground as an architect. That should be relatively easy to do. 
And then you get into an operations of those other values that you were looking at of, well, what do we want to go fill the space with? What type of programming do we want to have from a thought leadership and also uh, conducting regular meetings and regular dialogues amongst the members? And that must have been very interesting to see that change because there would have been a desire. Then there has to be some form of plan. That plan then needs to work out how to report back to the board on how it's actually achieving its goals. And and there's a very nice life cycle there about working out from nothing, how do you go build a reporting system that shows the value that's been delivered to the organisation? And I'd like to spend a bit of time on that because one of the things I always hear designers saying is we're trying to justify the value of design. And I think that could be their problem, that they're trying to actually harp on about design rather than harp on about the about what's been achieved that may have been facilitated through design. I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say that the American Institute of Architects board, and I'll make it plural boards, because I also served on the national board of the AIA um, in my capacity as, um, at least for a year, the um, president of the uh, National Staff Association. So that was a 50-some-odd member board with a very different dynamic because of its size. Can we just roll back a sec? Yeah. 50 members on a board? national board, 52 members. Wow. Yeah, which meant that um, many of the decisions were made by an executive committee of the board, uh, which was, if I recall, seven people. And I also served on that. And I saw the difference between a board and the executive committee of a board. And that's a structure that exists in many institutions, uh, where a board is uh, on paper inclusive and, and allows for different perspectives, different voices to be expressed. And the board ultimately has the fiscal and other responsibilities, but the executive committee uh, often sets the agenda and makes the decisions and poses or tries to its will on the larger board, which is more generally more diverse. The AI national component has changed its structure since then, um, but, um, uh, but when I say boards plural, I also served as an alternate member of the AI New York State Board, which was um, an interesting animal in that it was geographically based and uh, New York had equal representation to some much smaller communities uh, upstate. Um, and uh, uh, the dynamic uh, was trying to find common ground. Um, and maybe that's the case in every board. But you know, uh, to your question, all three of them you know, the, the local uh, Manhattan chapter, if you will, the state in Albany and national in D.C., had relatively little design discussion. So it wasn't that architects were avoiding the discussion of design, which was their daily bread, um, but their responsibilities on the board were about organization building, about uh, the resilience of the organization, its longevity, its growth, um, and um, not so much except tangentially on design issues and design issues as they're related to it. Certainly about the design of the Center for Architecture. One option was to take the space that we purchased um, at a bargain rate and leave it as is to both show restraint, frugality, respect for what was there before. Another option was to uh, uh, hire um, an architect who perhaps served on the board uh, uh, who potentially might have done the 
job pro bono as a favor. And what the board chose to do instead was to organize an open design competition, two-stage, uh, with expression of interest and approach to the problem. And, and, um, and then uh, with the uh, same independent jury, not the board as jury, narrow it down to uh, finalists who would be paid a stipend to submit an idea. And that was a board decision that obviously had major design implications and, and fiscal implications. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about design as a process, not as much about the end result. You know, Andrew Berman won the competition. The design uh, was essentially unchanged from the competition winning entry. And the president of the board served as the president in the, the year after her term of the, uh, the chair, rather, of the facilities committee, the house committee, that made sure that the competition winning scheme was implemented as design. So, so that's really interesting there, the, because the, the architects themselves, they will have brought the design sensibility about making sure that the building and the purpose was to go meet the needs of their community in every decision that they made. But it wasn't that they had to go and actually ring a bell and say, now I'm going to highlight a design consideration here. And I, and I think that's that pragmatic side of saying we can come with the values that are actually from a human-centered, from a design perspective, or we can come that we're... <laughs> I don't know, we're just banging on about the same topic. I think it's like hitting the same chord all the time. It can become a bit annoying. So that's very interesting to hear how that was handled. But no doubt every decision and every reference would have been made with the sensibilities of we're doing this in the balance of fiscal and also constituent So aid. I've talked a little bit about consensus, consensus building, unanimity of decision making. Um, uh, often there were contentious issues in any board. Um, um, if not the creation of a center for architecture, it was quite contentious uh, uh, to decide whether or not to expand it. Um, um, both for, um, I keep talking about money reasons, you know, fiscal reasons I don't mean to, uh, but just from a design point of view, if the space was adequate as it was when purchased, why expand it? What would be the value? Um, that was far from being a unanimous board decision. Um, I, as executive director, did not have a vote, but I had an agenda, and I pushed it very strongly to expand the center to the south. You've been in the space, established a gallery, which has been very useful both for different types of functions, including programs with kids, um, but it had a different character because it was a different building. We broke through and connected. Um, uh, so what was the dynamic of the board decision? It was clearly about design. Uh, when I subsequently pushed to expand to the north, uh, it was even more contentious for some of the same reasons. Geometry, uh, design, systems, need, programming, money. Uh, and the board um, voted over my strong objections not to expand. Uh, I left shortly thereafter. I won't say there was any causality, uh, but it was indicative to me that as always, the board is in control. No staff person, executive director, ex officio, uh, determines, in my experience, what the organizational philosophy should be. But someone serving um, uh, on the board and as a staff person has a uh, important responsibility um, uh, to both implement board decisions and inform the decision-making process. And that's what I saw my role as being back then. I had no idea that the, the center had been expanded because that that 
area off to the side that has the gallery in there. It, it feels like it just would have been planned that way at the beginning. So well, that's interesting to hear that it was a second, uh, that it was a second chapter. Uh, well, there was continuity even with the uh, years of um, distance between the original project and the expansion. We had the same architect, uh, Andrew Berman. We had the same um, contractor, Andy Frankel, Ibex. And uh, the uh, seamlessness of the connection uh, was partly a function of the skill of Pentagram who uh, did a graphic connection that uh, uh, was even more important than the, uh, than, the, than the architectural or construction expertise that the two firms I mentioned exhibited. I had an opportunity yesterday where I went to Pentagram. I thought for an hour we wound up being there two hours and, and, and just riffing and having a great time there. They're a very interesting practice because their reputation is to go make graphic devices and branding systems. but. You're not the first person who's told me how they've helped go connect projects and... And, and create a cultural identity. Yeah. You know, uh, more than branding. You know, they do that too, but it's uh, it's not about the marketing of an organization, institution, university. They, I think, do the same thing for, if not Columbia, certainly Yale. Uh, but what they had brought to the Center for Architecture in its earliest days, including the logo that was on the construction fence, uh, which had helped us open our doors, and it had a key uh, with the uh, in the shape of the skyline. Um, they brought a sensibility about creating the identity of a place that was transcendent, that went beyond the organization that was initiating it. And and that's interesting that you know I, I often refer to musical references. To me, they're a little bit like the Brian Eno of the design world. You think he plays keyboards, but when you go look at what he does for the bands that he's involved in. And I think that's very similar for what we're seeing Pentagram doing for their clients. You, you, th- the brain, you know, uh, uh, spoke at the Center for Architecture. I didn't um, know that. Um, uh, uh, we tried to create a place where he would be comfortable. Not he, we didn't design it for him, but uh, where uh, people like him could feel that it was their space as well. And if I could digress with an anecdote that you could edit out if we run out of time, um, there was a festival that was supposed to take place before the current renovation, along, this was quite a while ago, in Saarinen's TWA terminal. And the opening night party evidently got out of control. People went out the back door into the tarmac. The airport owner, the Port Authority, closed the festival down. Uh, Brian Eno was uh, scheduled to uh, uh, do a, uh, I'll call it a concert the next night. That got canceled. They were scrambling the organizers for another venue. Um, We volunteered at the center. And it was amazing. He had, uh, if I recall, three tape decks from the 60s, late 60s, um, early 60s maybe, uh, eight-track large format tape decks uh, with his recorded music, and he had three uh, associates all dressed in flight attendant uniforms from the 60s, concurrent with the uh, tape decks, playing, uh, what is it, airport music? Uh, yeah, and that, uh, the airport music was his big breakthrough, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he did that, and the room was packed, there was a line down the street, all with no publicity, changed venue at the last minute, and uh, for many years, uh, you might have seen in my 
old office, uh, uh, that album cover with his signature on it dedicated to the center. And, and, and David Byrne, similarly, uh, was there three times, uh, similar ways, similar reasons, but not, not canceled festivals, but talking about bicycles and everything else. So, so where's the board in all that, you might say? Well, did the board decide to invite Brian Eno to speak at the Center for Architecture? Absolutely not. The board didn't know about it. They were happy it happened, I guess. But um, the board created the culture of what was possible. And that, for an architectural institute, was purposefully interdisciplinary, purposely open to theater, performance, and other ways that people could talk about quality of life uh, and mind um, uh, with uh, the importance uh, always starting with design, even if it wasn't clearly expressed. The opening night party went till um, three or four in the morning. I'm forgetting. Um, It was certainly after three. And um, we had opened our initial inaugural exhibits, and the board was very much involved with those decisions about what opened the center. Uh, someone wandered in around three off the street. It was in Greenwich Village. It is in Greenwich Village, and and, and was curious about what was going on. The bar was still open, um, still music. And he said, "This would be a great club, but what's all this design stuff on the wall?" <laughs> <laughs> it would be a great club. And so I blame the board for that one. <laughs> Look, this has been absolutely fantastic I feel humbled that you've been able to go give us a half an hour of your time plus a little bit more for some music anecdotes there Um, so I suppose uh, seeing that you're now Frederick we have to go call you Frederick notorious RIC (laughs) and uh, (laughs) that way we can go go start something there it's still it's still Rick and uh, uh, you know I've been called much worse (laughs) well notorious RIC it's been fantastic spending a half hour with you and uh, thank you again for your time my pleasure thank you mark you've been listening to the design executive club podcast if you'd like to listen to other episodes please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast software make sure you like us make sure you share the news and uh, by being subscribed you'll find out when our next episode comes so thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon